Growing up, our family would uh, travel at least once a year uh, to Grand Haven, Michigan, to uh, to visit my grandparents. And we'd uh, we'd stay several days. We did a lot of fun things. Uh, most afternoons, though, my brother and I would be told that we needed to be quiet for a while or go play outside because Grandma and Grandpa were going to be watching their story. Not sure whether it was General Hospital or Days of Our Lives or As the World Turns, but about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, most weekdays, uh, there was something about that soap opera that drew them in, and it was their story. We're going to watch our story. And they watched it religiously. Uh, Good stories are, are engaging. American playwright Arthur Miller once said, in every successful drama, there is something that makes a person say, hey, that's me. Good stories are mirrors that help us understand ourselves. And so this summer, we're going to be studying some of the special teachings of Jesus. They're called parables, which are stories that Jesus told in order to communicate spiritual truth. Uh, Roughly one-third of all the recorded teachings that we have of Jesus in the four Gospels um, are are parables. So so these are pretty significant for us to to pay attention to. Uh, And and they're more than just a story. Parables not only give us a mirror to help us see ourselves, but they also help us see deep inside the heart of God. So over the rest of the summer, uh, I guess I want you to picture yourself uh, finding a great spot in the sun or uh, in the shade of a tree and cracking open some great stories, stories with with great characters and and plot twists and, and deep spiritual meaning that can shed new light on your spiritual life. It's going to be a summer of stories. And so these stories, these parables of Jesus, always start with something familiar to the people Jesus was talking to, and then they assign special meaning and significance to to certain characters or aspects of the story, and in doing that, they teach a spiritual lesson. One thing I want us to be careful of as we study these parables is that we take into consideration the context, uh, where and when and to whom Jesus was speaking. Uh, Some of these stories uh, are are difficult for us to relate to uh, because we're from a different time and a different culture, and and so we'll need to to spend time putting ourselves into that crowd or or the gathering of disciples that Jesus is talking to, or along the the Jerusalem roads or the Judean country countryside. I want us to, uh, uh, in, in our mind's eye, feel the dust in the air and smell the aromas and see the sights and, and understand the culture. We need to enter that world and, and try to hear these teachings like, like Jesus' audiences heard them. So, so with all that in mind, let's, let's open up this summer of stories with a, with a parable from Matthew chapter 20. Jesus was, was teaching his disciples about the concepts of, of fairness and grace and getting what we deserve or not getting what we deserve. You've probably at some point asked a favor of someone and uh, when, they, when they did whatever they did, maybe they gave you a pie. Just pulling something out of the air. Maybe they gave you a pie that you needed. And, and, then, uh, and then you said, oh man, I owe you. I owe you one, 
right? Or, or maybe someone has asked a favor of you and you let them know in so, uh, no uncertain terms, you're, you're going to owe me big time for this, right? Now, most of the time we don't follow through on that or make somebody pay that debt, so to speak. But, but a lot of times we operate under this sense of, of being indebted to others uh, for what they've done for us. I, I better help them out because they helped me. It's only fair. This sense of, of fairness shows up in our lives a lot of places in a lot of different ways. I, I think we all operate to some degree on the premise of what am I getting out of this? What's in it for me? I need to get my fair share. And, and unfortunately, I think Jesus knew that we have a tendency to operate that way even in our spiritual lives. We can tend to follow God for what we get from him. We probably wouldn't say out loud that he owes us, but we tend to operate that way sometimes if we're, if we're completely honest. So in, I want us to get a running start at, uh, at Matthew 20 by looking back at Matthew 19 because it's all kind of part of the same conversation and the same thing. And, and in, in an effort to get the context of it all, we need to, we need to start in Matthew 19 in order to uh, see why Jesus is telling this parable in the first place. Jesus is traveling here from Galilee toward Jerusalem uh, with his disciples and there's other followers along. At this point in his ministry, it seems like Jesus was attracting quite a following. Matthew 19 uh, verse 1 says that, quote, large crowds followed him. So we don't know whether large meant uh, 20 or 50 or 500, but there's a group of people following along Jesus. He, he was in Galilee, that's in the north of, of, uh, of the, the land of Israel at the time, and, uh, and he's traveling. Uh, down, kind of down, uh, through, past the uh, the and following the Jordan River and heading toward Jerusalem, and he's got this crowd following him, and it's a pretty diverse crowd. There are people, of course, there are his his twelve disciples, but then there are other people who would who would also be disciples or followers. They're on board, they're all in, they're following Jesus, and and uh, they're 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 part of the, the 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 crowd. But then there's also people that that maybe aren't. They've heard some things about this guy, and they're coming to check him out, and and uh, and so they're they're in the crowd, but they're not really part of. They wouldn't say we're followers. And then there's also the religious leaders. We see them pop up in the crowd, and, and they were opposed to Jesus. Uh, as, they, as they traveled, Jesus would, would teach along the way. And on this trip, if you, if you scan through Matthew 19, you'll see that the Pharisees uh, try, to, uh, try to trip Jesus up. They try to test him with some stuff, and uh, their, their attempt failed. But they were part of that crowd, and they were trying to, trying to uh, get, get Jesus to uh, uh, kind of uh, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing so they could... They could, uh, could, could kind of get him. But then uh, we also see in Matthew 19 that part of this uh, group were families, and some of the families, the parents, were bringing their children. And, and we've referred to, uh, to this not so long ago, this, this story where, where these children are coming to Jesus. Uh, parents are bringing their children, so Jesus will bless them. And the disciples said, hey, get out of here. Jesus doesn't need to mess with children. And Jesus said, no, let the children come. This is Matthew 19. This is what's happening. As they're traveling together, and they're spending time together, and they're, they're, they're uh, heading toward Jerusalem. That uh, that was part of what what happened here, and then you'll see in Matthew 19 that uh, that one person in this crowd was a was a young man, uh, a young man of privilege, and uh, and and he was sensing this this draw toward Jesus, and so he came to him and said, "What do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life?" 
And Jesus said, well, you need to follow the, follow the commandments for sure. And he said, well, I've done all that. And he said, well, Jesus knew him and he knew that he, had, he was a man of means and, and had, uh, had, had some riches and that was kind of holding him back. And so Jesus told this young, rich, young ruler, as we've come to know him, that he needed to sell everything that he had. And then he could come and follow Jesus because he had great wealth and, uh, and he was holding on to it. And, and it says there in Matthew 19 that, that this young man went away sad because of what, all that he had. And we don't get the indication that he ended up following Jesus. But after that exchange, uh, then, then uh, Peter, who, uh, you know, we pictured the 12 disciples are probably pretty close to Jesus through all of uh, this. And, uh, and, and so Peter heard this exchange going on. And in verse 27 of Matthew 19, he said, wait a minute, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. In other words, this young guy, you told him to, uh, to leave all of his stuff and come follow. And, uh, and, and then he'd, re- uh, he'd have blessing and, and receive eternal life. Peter says, hey, we've, we've done that. We, we've left everything to follow. What, what is there going to be for me? What are we going to get? Now, I'd expect Jesus to condemn Peter for his selfishness, right? And getting in there and, come on, what is it for me? But actually, Jesus doesn't. Uh, Toward the end of of Matthew 19 there, Jesus told Peter that he would, that the disciples, they would indeed receive amazing rewards in heaven. But then he proceeded to tell this parable, this story, to illustrate the fact that although there are rewards in heaven, that's not the point. And it can't be our motivation to serve God. It, it seems like Peter was seeing heaven almost like a bribe of sorts. You, you do this for me, God says. You do this for me and, and I'll give you heaven. But that misses the essence of what following God is all about. We're not serving Jesus merely for what we can get. This, this parable, this story of Jesus helps explain a little bit about how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. So with all of that now, as a, as a, a, a building up to, we come to uh, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, and this is the story that Jesus told. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. And sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also, go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go, work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. 
Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who, has, who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. We don't have this type of employment system in 21st century America, right? But, uh, but it would have been very common in, in Jesus' day, uh, taken straight out of the daily life of the people of Palestine. Uh, this, this is what happened before there were temp agencies, I guess, right? They, it was common for day laborers to do exactly what Jesus is describing here. Uh, they, they'd hang out in the center of town waiting to be hired. The landowners would know that they, these folks uh, uh, w- were willing to work, and so they'd go to the center of town if they needed someone for the day, and, and they'd agree on a price for the day, and they'd hire the workers that they needed. We don't know why this particular employer uh, had to go back several times uh, during the day. Uh, Maybe there was a pressing need to fill orders or a storm was coming or he was just compassionate for those who were unemployed. Uh, The reason isn't given and it's not all that important. But but according to the story, workers are hired beginning of the day, 6 a.m., and then 9 a.m. and noon and 3 and 5, and they work till 6. So it's a 12-hour day, and they started at various times. In many of of Jesus' parables, he would, and you'll see this throughout the summer, he would use an example from daily life, and and everyone could relate to it, and they're nodding along, and and Jesus is telling them, oh yeah, yeah, we know that, that's how things work, yep. But then at some point in the parable, Jesus throws a wrench into it, he he, he gives it a twist, and it, he changes what's typically done. And, and people in the crowd would have kind of perked up. Uh, they, they would have paid closer attention. And that's where we need to pay close attention because that's where the, the teaching usually happens. And so in this parable, uh, the first twist comes at the end of the day when it was quitting time and the boss lines up the employees to receive their pay. Now, typically, those hired first would have gotten paid first but, but, uh, and then on down the line, but Jesus turned that around. It's a, it's a twist. It's a, it's a flip. Jesus was teaching something there. We'll get to that. The ones hired last got paid first. And, and then, an even bigger twist, uh, they received a full day's wage even though they only worked an hour. Word quickly spread down the line, and so the men who worked a full shift started dreaming of their extra bonus getting uh, up to, probably in their minds, they were going to get 12 times what was expected. They worked one hour and got, got uh, what we thought we were going to get, so it's going to be, we worked 12 hours. But as the line progresses forward, everybody's receiving the same amount, one day's wage. And those who had worked 12 hours received exactly the same as those who had worked one hour. And so those all-day workers immediately protested and said, hey, that's not fair. And I think we'd, I mean, if you're all spiritual and everything, you're going, yeah, they shouldn't say that. But I think if we're honest, we'd say the same thing, right? That's not fair. Uh, we like things to be fair. People should get their due. And they earned it. And why did, I, it's not fair. I worked uh, uh, one summer during college on a painting crew. The company had recently been formed uh, by someone that I had gone to high school with. Maybe a bit of a red flag. Uh, but all was going well until midsummer when, uh, when we started to not receive our paychecks on time. And, and they kind of explained that, well, we don't have the cash flow because we had to buy all the stuff and do the stuff. And when we get paid for the job, then you'll get paid. And sure enough, uh, that kind of came through a couple of times. But, but by the end of the summer, the, uh, the company kind of went belly up. And uh, uh, yeah, I think I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't looked back. I've gotten over it, I promise. But uh, uh, it was I, I, probably at least a thousand bucks that I 
had earned but did not receive that summer. That's not fair, right? Come on. I worked for that money and I didn't get what I was promised. We want things to be fair. We want our due. Our economy is structured according to it. Lawyers help people sort it out when there's a dispute. We can relate to these workers in this parable who complained to the boss. That is not fair. They had every right to complain. The landowner's answer to these all-day workers was very straightforward. He didn't get defensive. He didn't fly off the handle. In essence, he told them, you know what? It's really not meant to be fair. (laughs) I mean, your pay is fair. I paid you what I said that I would, and you earned it, so I gave it to you. But I'm, I'm choosing to be generous with them. And in that voice of the landowner is Jesus' correction to Peter when Peter said, what do we get out of all of this? Jesus was warning against some dangers that we can slip into as we serve God. The first danger I want us to see in this story is the commercialization of the kingdom. We can't commercialize the kingdom of God. We can't approach work in the kingdom of God as a business transaction. Uh, God's economics are different than ours. I took econ... 101 and Econ 201 in college as components of my business degree. Back then, I saw Econ class as a great way to catch up on my sleep. I don't, in, I don't remember a lot, but I remembered it enough to get decent grades on the tests. But and in between naps, I learned, uh, you know, things about supply and demand and costs and production and, and, and resources and revenues and expenses and all the things that drive our worldwide economy, Right? Then I went to seminary, and I was increasingly aware of kingdom of God economics and how they work differently. If we work for wages in the kingdom of God, that's exactly what we'll get. We'll get what we earn and what we deserve, just like an employer and an employee. But you are not invited to be an employee of God. You are invited to be a child of God. It's a relationship. We're not employees, we're children, and we're dependent on the generosity of our Heavenly Father. The kingdom of God is not about earning wages, it's about accepting our Father's generous grace. There there are some things, I think you'd agree, there are some things that that we don't, that we'd never do for money. A book I read years and years ago uh, tells about a a, a man named Reese Howells. He was a Welsh coal miner turned revival preacher uh, back at the turn of the century. And and Reese Howells was was driven to serve God and to minister to others. And every day after working a 12-hour shift in the mines, he would walk two miles to lead a Bible study in a neighboring village. And then he would go home and, uh, and sleep and then do it all over again the next day. And one night, he came home in a downpour, completely soaked after doing this routine. And his father saw him and he said, oh, I wouldn't have walked there and back tonight for 20 pounds. And Reese Howells quietly answered, neither would I. Not the reason. There there are some things that we don't do for money, but we do for love. Uh, Approaching God's kingdom and serving him from a standpoint of what I'm going to get out of it commercializes our walk with God and it makes it a business transaction. We're not serving in order to earn anything but we're receiving 
grace. So don't commercialize the kingdom of God. That's one of the dangers that Jesus is pointing to as he tells this story to his disciples and this crowd. The second danger is comparing in the kingdom. There is a danger in comparison and competition in the kingdom of God. When these 12-hour workers saw the one-hour workers and what they received, they immediately compared themselves and their work, and they wanted more. So this is where, uh, where Jesus is teaching with that first twist, right? Because typically, uh, whoever was hired first would, got, would have gotten paid first, and they, would have, and they never would have known what the other people had gotten. But uh, in order to teach this to us and to show us how dangerous comparison is, Jesus turned that around so that these all-day workers saw what, they'd, what they thought they were missing out on. They, they saw what uh, these other uh, people uh, received and they could no longer receive theirs with joy. We rob ourselves of joy when we compare. I mean, it's, it's like two kids, I mean, hypothetically speaking, two brothers um, who might at some point in their lives growing up re- receive two halves of a cookie from their dad. Father's Day, we should, this is a dad giving given their kids now, you know that although those are, that's two halves of a cookie, one of those halves is bigger than the other, right? We know that. I mean, it's not mathematically true. It's not really, ha- but you know what I mean. If, if, if you look at those halves, you give them to, to, to each child. If, if, if I just had a half a cookie and I called kid in and said, here, have a cookie. Oh, great. And they'd run off. And then I call the other one in and give them, have, oh, great. But as soon as they're together and they get the cookie, uh, each one gets their half. Immediately, comparisons are made. And when those comparisons are made, it turns into pride for the one that got the bigger half. Usually sounds a lot like neener, 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 right? And it turns into jealousy and anger for the one who got the smaller half. And tears are shed and accusations are made and feelings are hurt and the dad of the, dad of the year award floats out the window and what was meant to be a fun time eating cookies turns into a bad afternoon for everybody. Comparison and competition. Jesus says that has no place in the kingdom of God. No matter how good you have it, somebody has it better. There will always be someone, quote, undeserving, who seems to be benefiting more than you. But the kingdom of God is not about comparing ourselves and our blessings with other people's blessings. Focus on God's amazing generosity to you. Uh, Peter seems to, over time, have learned this lesson. Years later, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, all about praising and giving thanks to God. He says, give uh, praise with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He learned how to, how to celebrate God's grace. We need to celebrate that amazing, generous grace of God who has found us and and provided exactly what our soul needs. And that same grace can be found by others. And and and, and then uh, God's grace is extended to them as well. God's grace to all of us should be a reason for joy, not jealousy and comparison. And Jesus tells this story to communicate Part of Peter's question there, what's it, what are we going to get? He's comparing what Jesus is telling this, this rich young ruler. 
We can't commercialize in the kingdom of God. We can't compare in the kingdom of God. Jesus also says uh, the third danger is complaining in the kingdom. Those 12-hour workers are described as, quote, grumbling against the landowner. Now, we've all grumbled before. Uh, hey, that isn't right. If, if I was in charge, they, you know, they really should. They really shouldn't. I mean, we, uh, but this is a little different than just a little complaint, a little grumble. Uh, you know, it'd be better if they'd done grumbling against the landowner. Now, who's the landowner in this story? It's God. So this is us com- grumbling against God. Have you ever grumbled against God, it's not that you've, I'm not just talking about disagreeing with God or being a little frustrated. This, this term here goes beyond that. In essence, it's saying, God, I know better. I don't like you and what you're doing. And I got a problem with, not only with this, but with you. Grumbling against God is an attack on his goodness and generosity. The, the last line of the landowner's response gets to the heart of things when he says, wait, are you envious because I'm generous? I mean, who do we think we are to complain about God, the, the eternal, righteous, holy, omnipotent, omnipresent God? God is God, and we don't get it, and we've got to trust, not grumble. <laughs> Complaints put our focus on what we feel we lack. And we end up missing all that we have. It's a scarcity mindset, uh, wanting to grasp at our rights and what we think we deserve instead of, <laughs> instead of being grateful for the abundance of what we've already been given. Complaining steals our joy and makes it pretty unpleasant for, for anyone around us too. Dangers about approaching the kingdom of God in a way that doesn't line up with the kingdom of God. This parable, this story of Jesus, gets to the heart of our motives in serving God. Why why are you serving? Is it for recognition or praise or that good feeling that you get when you do something that uh, is for somebody? Or, or maybe it's duty or, or, or reward. Uh, it, we're not just employees working for God so he'll give us what we think we've earned. We are children Delighting in our Father's invitation to join him in his work and trusting his grace and generosity. Jesus closes this parable with a line that you've probably heard before, and he says it more than once. He says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's a reminder that the external circumstances are are not the key to the grace and blessing of God. Whether I see myself ahead of someone else or, or more important or more deserving of reward or blessing is not the point in the least. God loves and God gives grace and God forgives and God blesses. And newsflash, none of us deserve it. We, we can't go to God and say, you owe me. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't owe you anything. But he gives us <laughs> so much. Peter sparked this whole story by saying, what's in it for us? Uh, Won't we be blessed because of all we're doing? And Jesus answered him with this parable, this story, in essence, saying, yeah, Peter, chill out for a second here. You'll be blessed. But it's not because of all that you've done or all that you've given up or this this whatever that you've earned, and so you get this thing. You're going to be blessed 
because God is gracious. Man by the name of Dr. David Livingstone, you've probably heard that name before, lived in the mid 1800s. And he gave the majority of his life not only as an explorer, but also a missionary in Africa. On December 4th, 1857, as he was preparing to return once again to Africa, Dr. Livingstone uh, attempted to put into words what drove him to serve. He said, I personally have never ceased to rejoice that God has entrusted me with his service. People talk a lot about the sacrifice involved in devoting my life to Africa. But can this be called a sacrifice at all? If we give back to God, quote, a little of what we owe him. And we owe him so much that we shall never be able to pay off our debt. Can that be called sacrifice, which gives us the deepest satisfaction, which develops our best powers and gives us the greatest hopes and expectations? Away with this word. If anything, it is anything but a sacrifice. Rather, call it a privilege. God's kingdom isn't about commerce or comparing or complaining. It's not about getting what we're due. It's about grace. And serving God gladly because of all that he has given. 